I've always thought the word environment was sort of interesting because it can depend on the context. For most people, environment is synonymous with the natural world, which brings to mind issues regarding pollution and climate change that make us all depressed. To epidemiologists, though, who study human exposure, environment can apply to the physical and built environment, the work or occupational environment, social and cultural environments, etc. Environment also makes me think about the interconnectedness of things. Now, any public health student will tell you that, of course, the things we come in contact with in our environment can influence our health. This is why we spend time thinking about the food we eat, the cleanliness of the water we drink, and the quality of the air that we breathe. There are, however, more insidious ways that our environment can impact health. I recall a study I read a long time ago that showed how nocturnal light pollution, presumably light coming in people's windows while they sleep, may be related to breast cancer incidents. In this episode, we're going to discuss a paper that explored the relationship between exposure to community noise and cognitive function. I'm Matt Davis. I'm Donovan Most. You're listening to Minding Memory. Today, we're joined by Dr. Sarah Adar. Dr. Adar is an associate professor at the University of Michigan School of Public Health in the Department of Epidemiology. She's an environmental epidemiologist whose research focuses primarily on the effects of air pollution. She's served in the past as an expert panelist for the Environmental Protection Agency and the World Health Organization, and she's received several notable research awards. She's here today to tell us about some of her recent work on noise exposure and dementia. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Last year, Dr. Adar was the senior author on a study titled Long-Term Community Exposure in Relation to Dementia, Cognition, and Cognitive Decline in Older Adults that was published in the journal Alzheimer's and Dementia. The study used data from the Chicago Health and Aging Project to examine the association between exposure to community noise and cognitive impairment. For those of you who might not be familiar with the Chicago Health and Aging Project, it's a cohort study conducted by researchers at Rush University that includes approximately 10,000 older adults from several different neighborhoods in the Windy City. I tell my students that it's important to read good studies. Once you stop having to take classes, reading articles is how you learn new things and how you get inspired. In my opinion, this is one of those studies. In addition to becoming aware of the findings, you're likely going to pick up a few other interesting things. In full disclosure, though, I've always been a bit of a geospatial analysis groupie. If you haven't read the article yet, I strongly encourage you to take a look at it. Go ahead, pause the podcast, read the abstract. We'll wait. To start things off, Sarah, can you tell us a little bit about the current state of knowledge around community noise and human health? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's no surprise to any of us that noise impacts hearing, right? We all are, you know, accustomed to going to the really loud concerts or being near um, jackhammers and worrying about our ears and our hearing. Um, those of us who've lived near um, sources of noise know it can be hard to sleep and it disrupts your ability to communicate with others um, and your ability to concentrate. It can just be really annoying. Um, what's generally less appreciated, certainly here in the United States, however, is that noise can cause stress in our bodies 
that actually induces much more subtle changes. So for example, it can increase our blood pressure, um, which then can lead to higher risk of heart attacks and things like that. Um, and now in this study, what we started to look at was whether or not um, noise exposures in our communities can also impact our brains. So is the is the idea that um, their relationship is sort of mediated through a stress response, or is there something about the noise actually being directly like neurotoxic itself? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's different hypotheses, and we don't know the answer exactly. But I do think that the stress response is likely, um, you know, to be a dominant one here. Um, as is, I think, sleep. I mean, I think that we're understanding more and more how disrupted and lack of sleep impacts, you know, dementia. And there's, you know, these cool theories about how, you know, the proteins like shower away, um, you know, gunk in your brain uh, as we rest. Um, so I think that those are two of some of the very plausible mechanisms by which noise might impact the brain. So a number of our listeners, we hope at this point are familiar with some of the cognitive function measures um, used in these types of studies. You use some interesting methods, though, to estimate community noise level that people are probably less familiar with, including something called the universal Krigging model that I have never heard of before. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about how you went about estimating noise level and are the methods that you used here sort of um, consistent with other types of work you've done before in this space? Yeah, absolutely. So um, like many pollutants are in environment, um, noise levels can differ very dramatically by place. So what that means is that, you know, for example, if I live right up against a freeway, my noise levels might be, you know, a hundred times higher, you know, um, than what you would experience a few houses away or even, you know, a block away. Um, now, noise levels are not random, as you might imagine. Right, it's going to be based on what's near you. So, um, airplanes, traffic, you know, um, trains, uh, bus stops, all those kind of things lead to noise in our environment. And so, what we did is that we went out and we did this really intensive um, sampling campaign where we tried to sample in all different places um, of the Chicago community. We sampled, you know, near and far from sources of noise. And then what we basically did is we created this spatial prediction model um, that estimates long-term exposures to noise based on what's around you. Um, and so, yeah, it's called, you know, universal Krieging. Effectively, what that is, it's a pretty fancy sounding name, but it's basically a linear prediction model that you account for spatial correlation. And what I mean by that is that, um, you know, you can imagine that uh, levels of noise are related to each other based on how close you are. So if if someone's standing right next to me, they're going to have noise that's very similar to me, whereas if someone's standing far away, they'd have different. So basically, the universal Krieging model, which is something we use all the time in air pollution epidemiology, um, you know, just allows us to predict new noise levels at places that were not measured um, based on the characteristics around you and the correlation or information from, you know, neighboring measurements or places. Gotcha. 
Um, if I recall, the study included uh, four different neighborhoods in Chicago. To what extent do you think those neighborhoods are sort of representative of the sound environment that's out there? Like, is this generalizable? Yeah, it's a great question. So, um, yeah, I mean, the CHAP study, which is what we affectionately call this uh, the study in Chicago, you know, was done in a more limited geographical space. So it is, you know, sort of primarily in one neighborhood in South Chicago. Um, having been to that neighborhood and done this sampling with my graduate students, you know, it it looks like a it looks like a regular city environment. It's common for Chicago. Um, Certainly, that environment is going to differ than, you know, some other places, though. So, for example, you can imagine standing in the middle of New York City, you know, if you're in certain neighborhoods, you know, that might look different than, for example, this one in Chicago, um, or even more extreme, if you stood in the middle of a field, you know, in Iowa, right, that's going to look really different. So, um, I do think that it was a fairly representative area in the city. But certainly I could imagine that, you know, um, the noise levels might differ from what you'd get, you know, in New York City, as well as the housing characteristics. Um, and the same with like being in, an, in a rural place. I had sort of a similar thought, like I wondered, like whether you would get enough variability, you know, within one geographic area. Yeah. So it's a great question and certainly something we worried about because it was this one neighborhood. Um, but it does come back to that amazing characteristic of noise, which is that um, it actually has an exponential decay from sources so that it does lead to this variation that if you have, you know, again, a major roadway running through a neighborhood, you're going to get a huge difference in exposure from those folks who are right up against the road as opposed to you know, again, a few blocks away. So that's sort of the the wonderful thing from a study design perspective about, about noise is it does have that fine scale variation, um, which again is why we need these sophisticated models to predict what those levels might be. Is there a like agreed upon like level or decibel level or something that's like too much noise or like excessive that people are not really... Well, so Europe has better standards than the United States. Um, the United States used to be a leader in noise research until about the 1980s. Um, and I've heard rumors as to which company was involved in putting some pressure on the government in terms of stopping noise research in the United States. Um, I'm not sure I have that confirmed, but uh, in the United States, noise has not been um, a real priority pollutant for the government um, really since the 80s. So we don't have standards here to protect us from these sort of you know, ambient um, levels. We just have the really extreme ones for occupational settings. We'll we'll have to ask you after the podcast what what that company was, but we won't <laughs> we won't record your answer. Sounds good to me. It sort of makes me wonder too about like the quality of the noise. Like noises from nature versus artificial must be different. Yeah. I mean, in addition to like just the overall like level, you know. Uh, yeah. So, um, so I uh, was had the wonderful experience of going on sabbatical a few years ago, and I took with me um, some noise instruments. And on the way, so we lived in Seattle, 
And my family drove 30 days across the country to Seattle and then back. Um, We went to like nine national parks and had this amazing time. And me and my kids did noise sampling across the country. And you would be (laughs) shocked at how loud some natural sources are. So like in the middle of a natural, you know, sorry, in the middle of a national park, if you're standing next to a waterfall, Mm. levels can be extraordinarily loud. (laughs) It's really interesting. But I do agree, you know, that that kind of noise, I would expect would have a different response on our bodies, you know, than that train that's coming through episodically and, and blaring its, its, um, its horn. Only a researcher would, you know, bring their kids in and experiment on vacation. <laughs> oh my gosh, my my yeah, my family started getting sick of me because I would take these five minute noise samples anytime we stopped. So it would be like you know restroom break or or gas break or you know lunch, and I would be standing out there taking noise samples. So <laughs> let's talk a little bit about the data source. I think yeah. some of our listeners are going to be interested in this Chicago Health and Aging Project. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience working with those data and kind of what you perceive as the strengths and the weaknesses? Yeah. So, um, of course, good science is always done when you have access to great resources. Um, And this CHAP study is one of those. You know, it's great because it's a large um, study that was done for research. Um, It collects detailed information on people and their cognition, um, where really they were collecting surveys of people's cognition every three years to test their cognitive functioning. Um, And that has the wonderful benefit that it's not just relying on medical records, which medical records sound good, but the trick about medical records is it's not just if you get dementia, but also if you're going to the doctor to even get diagnosed with dementia, which you can imagine tracks pretty closely with socioeconomic status and noise tracks pretty closely with socioeconomic status. So having, you know, research grade data was really important. Um, CHAP is also really nice because it includes a large fraction um, of African-American participants as opposed to many studies which are really just focused, you know, on on white individuals. So that's another really nice feature of CHAP. Um, I mean, in terms of, you know, weaknesses, we talked a little bit about it being a smaller geographic neighborhood in one city. So, you know, sort of asking that question, Donovan, that you had about, you know, how, how much can I take these findings and apply them to anyone in the country um, is a question. Uh, The other thing is just on um, studies of aging can be a little bit tricky because you wind up selecting the healthiest people to remain in your study over time. You know, as as you follow older folks for longer and longer, um, you know, you sort of get these healthier and healthier individuals as time progresses. To what degree are the data actually accessible to researchers? That's a great question. Um, I mean, I had uh, some collaborators who worked with CHAP, so that was how I got access to the data. Um, the PI was extremely welcoming, uh, you know, so it's it's not um, just publicly available where you can easily get it like NHANES or something like that. But, you know, once you have your IRB in place and you work with a PI, um, you know, getting access was not, was not problematic. So then um, it, it really... 
with any type of study, in particular, I would think within uh, with this study, um, you have to wonder about confounding related to other types of environmental exposures. Uh, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you handled that in your analysis. And this time, I'm also especially interested in the neighborhood disorder score. And if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So um, as an environmental epidemiologist or epidemiologist in general, right, we take confounding so very seriously because you always worry, you know, am I really looking at the, you know, exposure of interest or is it something else that might be confusing my association? Um, Typically, when we're in environmental field, we worry most about socioeconomic status, you know, so um, in this design, we adjusted for race, we adjusted for personal income and education level. Um, And then, as you mentioned, we also adjusted for some of these characteristics of your neighborhood, because there's really interesting research, especially in cardiovascular disease, that shows it's not just about your own individual socioeconomic position that matters, but actually, you know, what what resources there are around you that matter. So for neighborhood socioeconomic status, we used information um, from the census just to get a, you know, um, a characterization of the type of people that are living there. We also had this neighborhood um, disorder score, which was based on self-reported information about neighborhood composition um, and really quality of the of the neighborhood around you. Um, thinking about you know things like sidewalks and whether or not those have good um, conditions and other characteristics of your space. It seems like uh, if you think about the the noise pollution as sort of an ambient source of stress. This is almost like another type of environmental stress that you're able to capture and account for. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, that's one of the reasons we were, you know, we were interested in including that in the models just to make sure that it wasn't, for example, exposure to violence, you know, that's tracking with the noise. Um, You know, that that's also a really important source of stress in neighborhoods. Um, I just wanted to mention the other things that we adjusted for in our model. So, um, you know, if you were listening to the different kinds of sources of noise, you might imagine that air pollution also tracks with many of those. And so we adjusted pretty carefully for air pollution levels at people's homes as well. Um, And then also included, you know, sort of your standard risk factors of age and sex and time and um, smoking and alcohol use. So let's turn to the results. What did you find? Yeah, so we found that um, living in a house that had higher neighborhood noise around it um, increased your odds of having mild cognitive impairment um, and dementia. We also found that those higher levels of noise was associated with worse um, cognitive performance, um, especially related to perceptual speed. Um, And if you sort of translate that into years of age, it looked as if having um, a 10 decibel higher noise level, um, which maybe would be the equivalent of, you know, going from a, um, you know, a quieter neighborhood to a more urban, you know, neighborhood with bustling and things like that, um, was equivalent to the difference in cognitive function. Um, that you would see from two people who are two years apart in age. 
And then you also looked at particular subgroups of interest. So did you find any particular notable differences in findings based on different populations of patients or participants? Yeah. So we did. We looked to see whether or not this association between noise um, and, you know, cognitive functioning differed by people of different ages and races. Um, we actually had, you know, um, APOE to look at, you know, sort of a genetic um, risk factor for dementia. And we also looked at this um, socioeconomic status and neighborhood disorder. Um, I would say we found some limited evidence that there were differences um, by socioeconomic status with folks in lower, you know, socioeconomic status or more disordered neighborhood having a slightly higher risk. Um, and that might be due to, you know, different quality housing, um, you know, interaction with other stressors or added stressors in those individuals' lives. Um, but I would say actually in looking at the results again, I think it's pretty largely consistent across groups, which to me is really important because it actually shows that this is a meaningful impact for everyone. You know, it's not just one right. really susceptible group. This is something that's happening across the population in general. Regarding the results, I just want to say that I really like your table too. If, <laughs> if, if you don't have the article in front of you, it's a super short table of two odds ratios. And I feel like I have these conversations with trainees all the time that like tables don't have to be big and huge, like really effective tables are really short and to the point. I have a question that's a little bit more into the weeds, actually. Okay. So, you know, when you think about dementia measures, you have things like immediate, you know, and delayed recall and all these different types of measures that have, you know, different scores, people turn those into Z scores. And I've seen variation in how people then like create global scores. So from what I recall in your article, you decided to basically do the average of Z scores and put them together. Do you have any thoughts about like, I don't know, sort of statistically, whether there's one preferred way versus the other versus just adding the Z-scores together? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I will admit that I'm learning more and more about it every day. Um, I work with somebody named Alden Gross, who's a professor at Johns Hopkins on a different study. Um, and he's been doing some interesting approaches where... Um, effectively, you, you allow different constructs to cluster together. So when you do this average z-score, you sum the z-scores or you do something like that, what you're effectively doing, um, and you likely know this, is you're assuming that each one of your tests has equal weight, right? And so you're, you're just sort of adding them all up and everybody gets the same amount of impact on your total score. And my impression of what is happening now and sort of where the field is moving to is allowing things to, you know, sort of weigh in on these different pieces and, and perhaps thinking about whether or not each of your tests should have equal weights. Um, but again, that's, it's, you know, that's less of my area of expertise, but I do see that there's pretty interesting research going on in that area. In the article, it mentions that there hasn't been a lot done, particularly in the United States, looking at, you know, noise level and cognitive function. How do you see the results from your study kind of fitting in? 
Right. There's been relatively little studied on this association between noise and um, cognition. Um, as you mentioned, you know, there's a few studies from Europe. So our results are generally consistent with findings from studies um, in Germany and in London and the UK. Um, less so from a study in Sweden where the levels were really low. Um, and now in the United States, actually about the time that we published our research or shortly after, there was a new study that was done in the Sacramento area by a colleague of mine. Um, and there they found almost identical associations between noise um, and incident dementia and MCI, or mild cognitive impairment, as we did in the study. So I think in general, our results are consistent with the limited research that we're seeing. Um, in terms of fitting in from a different perspective, you know, I think that the U.S. has largely ignored noise as an important source of poor health in our nation for a while now. Um, and so I think what's important about this study is not just advancing, you know, the science of this topic, which does need more research, but I think Doing a study in the United States is important to really shine a light on this issue. Um, you know, a friend of mine did a study a while back already now and showed that it was something like 50% of our, you know, urban populations were living at levels that, you know, the WHO would have called unsafe for noise. Um, and yet it's not something that's on the general population's mind as something to worry about. So again, I think our studies are largely consistent with what's been seen in the few other papers out there. And I think it's important that we're doing this research here. So I think uh, we clearly have a lot more to learn about um, how the environment impacts our cognitive function. So what do you see as sort of promising uh, future directions of work based on your work so far? Yeah, so, I mean, I think one of the positive things about this research, um, you know, again, is that it's going to highlight noise as, as a potential, um, you know, toxic to us here in the United States and impacts on our health. Um, in general, I think there's been a really big push on environmental exposures and dementia in recent years with the funding for this through the NIH. Um, and so air pollution really has seen an explosion in um, our understanding that it is a risk factor for um, dementia and poor cognitive impairment. Um, you know, and I think it's important because... Many risk factors, individual level risk factors and interventions have largely been ineffective at stopping, you know, the progression of dementia and, you know, improving the number of people from getting dementia. And so these kind of factors are exciting because you can modify them on the population level. You know, with air pollution, we have the Clean Air Act. We've seen great improvements in health with the Clean Air Act. And now thinking about how this might, you know, improve and prevent people from getting dementia is great. Um, if similar actions could be done with noise, I think that would also be really exciting. 
Um, you know, in terms of other sort of interesting research that's going on and thinking about what we can do next. Um, I think that for me, it would be really interesting to think about sources of resilience to some of these environmental exposures. So, um, you know, maybe in the next studies, we can look, for example, at whether or not people who live near major roads, but who have a sound barrier, you know, might not have the same kind of impact of near living near a highway as people who don't have that sound barrier. You know, could it be that trees, for example, provide protection? Um, we know that building types and, you know, better window panes and things like that can improve um, people's noise exposures. So thinking about that would be interesting. Um, and just in other topics, you know, my research area, as you noted at the beginning, is also in air pollution. Um, and we've been doing a lot of work on air pollution and dementia now around the world. Um, so we have studies that are spanning now from, you know, India and China, Mexico, the United States, um, and thinking about the similarities in those associations and the differences. Um, and thinking about how, for example, indoor exposures, so people are still using biomass fuel for cooking, can impact um, our brains, um, is not something we perhaps worry as much about in the United States, but from a global health perspective is a huge burden um, for, for, for dementia and cognitive decline. So it sounds like uh, you'll have no trouble keeping busy. <laughs> Yes, I am. I am grateful for um, interesting things to study um, and wonderful studies and collaborators to do that with. It makes me wonder how electric cars will perhaps change some of these noise levels on roads, you know? Oh, yeah. So um, because, like I said, I study air pollution as well as electric cars are fascinating because from an air pollution perspective, you know, yes, the pol air pollution levels are lower with electric cars, but you need to make that electricity. So how you make the electricity, right, has a huge impact on the population burden of electric cars. Um, so luckily, we're moving towards cleaner energy sources. But yeah, if you were just burning coal to, um, to, to fuel those, um, that would be a situation. Uh, but from noise, it's really interesting because you know, sort of the opposite trends with um, with air, like air pollution and noise sometimes from vehicles do the opposite. So in a traffic jam, you get more air pollution, but less noise because the cars are still and it's not it's the sound of the tires that often make noise from roads. So electric vehicles would probably impact our air pollution, but maybe less the noise. So I'm going to think twice before I buy a house underneath a waterfall. <laughs> Sarah, thanks yeah. so much for joining us. And thanks to all of you who listened in. If you enjoyed our discussion today, please consider subscribing to our podcast. Other episodes can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud, as well as directly from us at Capra med.umich.edu where a full transcript of this episode is also available. On our website, you'll also find links to our seminar series and data products we've created for dementia research. Music and engineering for this podcast was provided by Dan Langa. More information available at www.danlanga.com. 
Minding Memory is part of the Michigan Medicine Podcast Network. Find more shows at uofmhealth.org slash podcasts. Support for this podcast comes from the National Institute on Aging at the National Institutes of Health, as well as the Institute for Healthcare Policy and Innovation at the University of Michigan. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the NIH or the University of Michigan. Thanks for joining us, and we'll be back soon.